Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from a rich past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Well, here we are, folks. It's February. Before we dive into today's episode, I have some exciting announcements. First, this is my 50th regular recording, so it's not counting my Patreon episodes, minisodes, or standalones. If we do count them all, we're at 101 total recordings, but I love that this is number 50. Uh, Big milestone. All right. Uh, stepping away from the podcast for a minute, not podcast related, but this is history related. I wanted to bring to your attention the proposed Royals downtown stadium. So uh, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago at this point, Councilman Frank White vetoed adding the question regarding the sales tax that would be used to pay for this new stadium to the ballot in April, but that was overturned. So the measure is on the ballot in April. and. I'm going to encourage everyone who's listening to vote no on this ballot measure, and here's why. Y'all have heard me rant about the stadium before, and I stand by my arguments. There's not enough parking, and the increase in downtown traffic will do nothing except for piss off commuters. Also, it's always better financially and environmentally to rebuild, um, not rebuild, renovate what you already have rather than tear down and build new. But... This next reason comes before all of those. The proposed site for this new stadium, the one that the Royals, the owners of the Royals, really, it's not like the team really has to say, have said, this is the one. After two years of dragging our feet, this is the one we want, the one we're going to pursue. And it's not in the East Village like they always said it would be. Instead, it is actually the site of the old Casey Star Building. It's right there, overlooking the highway. And it's got um, T-Mobile, a.k.a. Sprint Center, directly across the highway from it. And Kaufman is over to its, um, I think that's the left. And then, you know, the building's big, but it's not that big that a whole stadium can fit in there. So this site is also going to take up several city blocks within the Crossroads Art District. I don't know of a united coalition fighting this measure yet. If you do, please reach out to me. I very much would like to speak to them to see how I can help them in this fight. Because if the ballot passes and the sales tax is approved, it will be used to buy up the land um, that all of these businesses are on in order to build the stadium. And then, uh, you know, we're we're just going to keep paying for the royals to be there anyways um but by buying up all this land of the crossroads they're pushing out all these local businesses which is what i hate the most um there's over 20 local businesses such as green dirt on oak it's a restaurant that i've been wanting to try the chartreuse salon i think i said the right chartreuse salon Um, It's a restaurant. There's Resurrection Downtown, a church, the Mercy Seat, which is a tattoo parlor, Casey Conjure and Botania, which has crystals and candles and etc. And 
you know, just dozens of others. And I think it goes without saying that putting a baseball stadium in the heart of the Crossroads Arts District is basically the exact opposite of what this historic neighborhood is all about. So, um, I don't live in KCMO. I actually don't get a chance to vote on this. I wish I did. But if you live in KCMO, please vote no. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Okay. Um, also unrelated to this podcast, but again, history related. And I thought, I don't know, you might find this in. I attended a virtual conference through AASLH, that's the American Association of State and Local History, uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was really, really great. Um, it was all about how to teach a full, true, inclusive whole history amidst severe political dividers. Just really good. Had some amazing speakers and panelists and a lot of really good practical advice. Two of the things that kept being brought up in one way or another were, one, the average person thinks that there's a single historical narrative and therefore there's only one story to tell and interpretation is a quote-unquote woke agenda and therefore bad. So for the most part, I don't, or at least I'm not sure that I really, I really show much interpretation within these episodes that I do. But I want you all to know that interpretation is not a bad thing. I mean, that's the role of a historian is to analyze sources and interpret them to create a narrative. And I understand that still sounds a little bit misleading. I'm not creating as in making up. I'm finding a way to tell this story depending on um, the lens that I'm looking through. And there's so many. You can look at history. And different topics in history through the lens of feminism, through the lens of masculinity, through psychology, through economics, uh, through sociology, etc. Prohibition, for example. This is a period of history that I've talked a lot about on here. So uh, I hope that that means that you've seen multiple perspectives on hit prohibition, depending on you know, where you lived, what you believed, what your life desires were, uh, what your economic status was, etc., and so on. You had different opinions on prohibition I mean, at the time, if you lived in. That's what I'm saying. So when I pick a topic like the Western Auto Building, that one is still super popular amongst all of you, I try to tell the full story from creation to, you know, the present day when I'm recording. Um, and I tried to talk about uh, what went into building that building, events that took place, etc. But when I pick a topic like labor history, which is going to be a focus of an episode later in this particular series, I'm going to be uh, trying to be more conscientious moving forward about providing you with information from multiple perspectives so that you get a more well-rounded story instead of saying, you know, um, labor is good and therefore, and, and then we're done. No, be like, okay, well, this group thinks labor is good because of X, Y, Z. This group also thinks labor is good, but they disagree with group one over ABC. See what I'm saying? Like, I, I want you all guys to understand, and I don't know how well I've done it in the past, but I, moving forward, I really want to try to show you all these different perspectives that you can look at or people, you know, in, in history in our city at the time looked at this topic in, in so many different ways. The second thing that came up repeatedly was 
basically the role of an institution in activism. Um, so the census that came down was the question, what is your mission? So like um, a museum, an archive, a library, whatever um, public interacting historical institution you work at, the question of what should I say in response to, for example, the shooting at the Chiefs rally, um, needs to go back to what is the mission of the institution. So it was all about like finding that line between this is my personal opinion and this is the professional opinion that will reflect upon my institution and being very careful and deliberate when crossing it. Um, so basically what it came down to was this, so what it came down to was this suggestion that it might be smarter to not make that politically charged statement and continue to reach your audience rather than crossing that line. Great advice, and I agree with it to a degree. However, this podcast is not affiliated with an institution, so reminder that, um, Things said here are my own research, um, which I've made as accurate as possible, and my own thoughts and feelings on p- current topics and have nothing to do with my work at the Black Archives. Um, and I have increasingly, I think as the years have gone on with this podcast, been vocal about my um, political and social beliefs, and I'm going to continue to do so. So that is a great segue to once again call out the Israeli government for enacting genocide against the Palestinian people. Can't even call it a conflict uh, anymore at this point because the Israeli government has bombed basically the entirety of Gaza, including uh, hospitals and refugee camps, which is against international law and considered a hate crime. That said, um, anti-Muslim hate is up across America, but so is anti-Semitism. And both are the wrong response and attitude to have in response to the situation, my dudes. Uh, If you want to take action, please do it without resorting to violence or hateful or discriminatory rhetoric. And call, email, or instead, this is what you do. You call, email, write up, um, hell, tweet at or Snapchat at, I don't care. Um, your state and federal reps and tell them to demand a ceasefire. You can also donate your time and money and or money to a nonprofit or charity that is helping those who are hurt um, on both sides, Israeli and Palestinian, um, such as Heart to Heart International, which is right here in our own backyard in Lenexa, Kansas. Um, speaking of our own backyard, and I, I think this is the last thing I wanted to talk about before actually getting on topic, so thank you for your patience. Um, I mentioned the shooting at the Chiefs rally earlier today, um, earlier in this podcast. I mean, um, I just read today, though, that two grown men have been arrested um, and related to, to the shooting. Yeah, I said that right. Um, as well as two teenagers. So... Um, if you are upset about this, oh, oh, sorry, and all of the children who were injured are now at home, so that's great. Um, if you are upset about this, again, do the same thing. Contact your reps, however you can. Demand more stringent gun laws, because 
right now in America, we have more laws about how to get a license and what is required than um, what is required to own a gun. So, like, you should be required to take training before you own a gun. You should be required to have a license to own a gun and not just concealed carry. Speaking of which, a lot of states now no longer require a license for concealed carry. Um, Americans should not own an AK-47, which is a military-grade rifle. There, That is a weapon of war. There is no need for a civilian to own such a weapon. And if you are um, an abuser, you have a history of abuse, you shouldn't own a gun. Or at least, you know, there should be flags because um, domestic partners are one of the number one causes of death among Americans today, um, uh, among statistics of deaths by gun. Um, death by gun is actually the number one cause of death for our children, which is fucking messed up. Um, and you should have to have a background check before you get a gun and not just go buy it off some dude in a parking lot. It's ridiculous. And, I mean, it's been going on for over 30 years. So I really don't understand why this is getting worse every year. But we shouldn't have to fear going to church, going to a movie theater. Children shouldn't fear going to a fucking school, okay? They're supposed to be safe there. Uh, I shouldn't fear going to a parade or a rally. And somebody with a gun and angry is going to let it go, okay? So, if you agree, like I said, please contact your reps. Demand stricter gun laws. Okay, um, very, very last thing. I know I said that was probably the last. I just looked at my notes. Um, for those of you who are interested, I mentioned that I was going to read banned books this year. Um, last month, my friend and I... Oh, wait. No, sorry. This is February. Um, sorry. Last month and this month. <laughs> it took us two months to read this. My friend and I are reading Have Read All Boys Aren't Blue by George Johnson. Um, so far, it's been good. Um, parts of it kind of heartbreaking. Okay, um, we are halfway into the show and not on topic yet, so thank you for your patience. That is all I have for announcements. Okay, here we go. So this is topic two, part one of Harry S. Truman of series eight, 2024, We Are the People. And this topic is going to be a biography of President Truman, um, not including his presidency, because I already talked a lot about it in my mini-sode when I visited the Truman Library Museum, and I feel like his presidency is already so well-known, but his time before the presidency, and especially after presidency, is far less well-known, so that's what this is going to be about. Um, and I have also mentioned Truman before in Series 2, Pairs of the Plains, and my minisode, which I just mentioned. So if you haven't listened to them yet, I highly recommend you do so. Um, I also encourage you to become a patron supporter because I have a couple of Patreon episodes coming up that are going to be focused on Truman. 
So let's start with his family. Truman's father was John Anderson Truman, born December 5th, 1851 in Jackson County, Missouri, to Anderson Ship Truman, 1816 to 1887, and Mary Jane Holmes Truman, 1821 to 1878. John Anderson died in Kansas City on November 8th, um, sorry, November 3rd, 1919. Grandpa and Grandma Truman were both born in Shelby County, Kentucky. Anderson Ship was a slave owner, as were his in-laws. They actually gave him a slave as a wedding gift. Yuck. Um, they married um, Anderson Ship and Mary Jane married and moved to Kansas City from Kentucky in 1846. So 20-ish years before the Civil War and Emancipation. John Anderson had four siblings. They were William Thomas Truman. One second. Come on. Oh, it's freezing. Hold, hold on. Uh, there we go. Um, 1847 to 1930. Margaret Ellen, a.k.a. Ella Truman Noland, 1849 to 1948. She lived 99 years. Emily Ricks Truman Colgan, 1855 to 1929. And Mary Martha, a.k.a. Maddie Truman, 1860 to 1900. His wife... Uh, John Anderson's wife also went by Maddie, so that's not confusing at all. Also, what's up with basically everybody in this family being named Margaret and or Mary? There are a few more. There's a lot. At the time of his son's birth, John Anderson was a livestock trader. About a year later, 1885, they moved to a 71-acre farm just south of Bolton, Missouri. But they were only there for a couple of years before they moved in with his in-laws, Papa and Granny Young. By the way, I don't know what Truman actually called his grandparents. This is just how I chose to identify them. And I think Papa and Granny Young is very cute. Um, anyways, um, they moved in with the in-laws on their farm, which is out by Grandview. It's still there today. It's a hus state historic site. It's run by the state parks. It's open to visitors. The family moved to Independence proper in 1890. So Harry would have been about six at that time, and it's because his mom wanted to, I'm going to introduce her in a minute, um, she wanted to give her children a good education, so they moved to the city. But even once they lived in the city, John Anderson continued to keep slash work with livestock. Kind of like that old, um, you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. That's John Anderson, that's what I feel like. Um, Truman's mother was Martha Ellen Young, a.k.a. Maddie Truman, born November 25th, 1852, also in Jackson County, Missouri, to Solomon Young, 1815 to 1892, and Harriet Louisa Gregg Young, 1818 to 1909. Maddie Young came from a very large family. She had eight siblings, so nine kids total. There is Susan Mary Young Bartleson, 1839 to 1925. William Andrew Young, 1841 to 1916, Sarah Ann, a.k.a. Sally Young uh, Childs, 1843 to 1907, Harrison Young, 1846 to 1916, Elizabeth F. Young, 1848 to 1854, so she died in childhood, Laura Jane Young Everhart, 1850 to 1933, and I gotta say, I love Laura Jane Ella Hart, or sorry, Everhart. Ella Hart, that's cute too. But Laura Jane Everhart just rolls off the tongue. It's beautiful. And 
There's also Adelon, aka Ada Young uh, Van Kluster, I think is how you say that. 1854 to 1914, and an unnamed brother who was born and died in 1856. So perhaps he was a stillbirth, or perhaps he just died, um, you know, a few weeks after birth. Papa and Granny Young were also from Shelby County, Kentucky. Quote, from the 1840s through the 1860s, Solomon Young helped leg wagon trains west to California and Utah. End quote. So there's actually three trails that began in Independence, the Santa Fe Trail, the Oregon Trail, and the California Trail. Granny Young outlived her husband by a few years, and when she died, she left Grandview Farm to Maddie, that's Harry's mom, and her brother Harrison. All of her other kids she left out of the will, so a little bit of family tension there. So, Mama died in Grandview on July 26, 1947. She had studied art and music at the Baptist Female College in Lexington, Missouri, there we go, and taught Truman to play the piano when he was very young. He played piano for a very long time, so he must have been good, I would hope. All right, here we go. Harry S. Truman was born May 8, 1884 in Lamar, Missouri. He had three siblings, a brother born in 1882 who died that same year, an older brother, John Vivian Truman, born 1886, died 1965, and a younger sister, Mary Jane Truman, born 1889 to 1978. The house where he was born is still standing. It's a little house museum slash state historic site. And I sense that this would be a good road trip for the summer. It's only two hours south. Very easy to do that there and back in a day. According to the autobiography of Harry S. Truman, he was named after his uncle Harrison Young, and S in his middle name is not an initial for anything. His middle name really is simply the letter S in honor of both of his grandfathers, Solomon and Anderson Ship. Harry was born with poor vision. He had to begin wearing glasses at age six. In 1894, age 10, Harry and his brother both caught diphtheria. John apparently recovered quickly, but Harry did not. His symptoms lasted about six months, and at one point, they seriously thought he was going to die. Maybe that's not the most riveting piece of trivia from his biography. I'm sure he caught the chicken pox as a child and, you know, had a cold, like, several, several times over the course of his life. But I read that, and I had to include it because Balto was one of my favorite childhood memories. Film millennials, y'all out there? I know you had the same thought as soon as I said diphtheria. Now, according to Harry S. Truman, His Life and Times by Brian Burns, Harry sounds like he was a very scholastic-minded kid and also very hardworking. Quote, he helped edit the high school annual. During high school, he also worked at an independent square drugstore cleaning hundreds of medicine vials with a feather duster. End quote. That, frankly, sounds very tedious. <laughs> After high school in 1901, Harry, unable to afford college, moved to KCMO and continued working. Quote, Truman worked two banks drilled with the Missouri National Guard and discovered theaters, seeing shows after work, and in one case, taking a job as an usher to see still more. End quote. Burns said that John Anderson, quote, squandered his family's finances speculating in grain futures, end quote. 
Now, speculating in futures is very chancy. <laughs> ten ten would not recommend. But squandering sounds a touch harsh to my ear. Um, like he did it on purpose. I'm going to give John Anderson the benefit of the doubt and say that he simply made an inadvertent investment choice. However, it did result in the loss of $40,000 worth of property, money, and stocks. So the family had to sell their home, and they moved from Independence to KCMO. At which time, John Anderson became a night guard at a grain elevator. So he lost a lot, a lot of money, but they weren't destitute. They still have a place to live. He still has a good job. Uh, and so did his son. And in 1905, John Anderson and his wife... And Harry's sister, Mary Jane, moved to a farm in Clinton, Missouri. Now, again, that didn't turn out to be very successful. A year later, upon the death of his mother-in-law and his wife's new inheritance, the whole family, including Harry, moved back to the farm in Grandview once more. Burns also said that Harry wanted to attend West Point Boy, his, but his poor eyesight prevented him from attending um, given his long and close association with the military as an adult, I think that desire tracks. But I want you to take a moment here and imagine what it's like to live in Casey Mo from 1900 to 1910. So Kansas City has just hosted its first presidential national convention at its newly built convention hall, which I told that story in topic one of this series. Truman may have even been there at the event. I don't know. But, even, you know, even if you aren't there, something big like that happens in your city and it has an impact on you. Pendergast is not in power yet, but his big brother, Big Jim, is a ward boss at this time. We're, so we're leading up to the Pendergast era. The Kansas City stockyards are basically in the prime. The city is rapidly growing. Thousands of animals are getting shipped through the stockyards daily. The rich are getting much richer because of this. Um, there are some large floods coming in 1903, 1905, and 1908, all of which I discussed in my topic on the Starkyards from Series 1. And the since the city is experiencing um, a fiduciary influx from the Stockyards, that means that quote-unquote culture is coming to Kansas City in the form of operas and theaters and um, later movies in the 1920s. Um, and I talked about that in Series 6, Historic Theaters. So what I'm trying to get at is that for a young, white, able-bodied man of true social status, not afraid to work hard at literally any job, this is a really exciting time to live in the city. There's a lot for them to, a lot of new stuff for them to do, right? It's less exciting if you're a woman and you still don't have any rights, including the right to vote. Or if you're an immigrant and you're living in a literal slum, like um, pitched tent, mud, and feces you know, floating in the mud sort of slum while you work at the stockyard or the canning factory. Again, talked all about that in my topic from series one. Or if you're black and you are living as a second-class citizen, also denied all of your rights. But for Truman, life is good right now. Truman finally got a job not long after graduation as a railroad timekeeper, which I just mentioned a little bit ago. He worked 60 hours a week and made $35 a month. 
1903, he got a job at Kansas City's National Bank of Commerce. After working there for a few years, he transferred to the Union National Bank for almost double the pay, now making $75 a month. In 1914, after the death of his father, which, by the way, he died from a hernia that he received while working as a Jackson County road overseer, Harry took over the young farm in Grandview, and two years later, he attempted to invest in oil drilling by buying and then operating a small mining company. But much like his father's attempts in grain speculation years before, he was not successful. The National Guard Battalion Truman was a member of was shipped overseas to Germany in 1917. Harry had joined the Guard in 1905 and then left in 1911, but he re-enlisted in 1917. As a reminder to listeners, World War I began in July 1914, but the U.S. did not join the fighting until February 1917, and troops were not sent over until June of that year. The war ended in November 1918. However, Truman did not return from the war until May 1919. During the war, Truman was a part of Battery D of the 129th Field Artillery and reached the rank of Captain. He was awarded five medals, the U.S. World War I Victory Medal, the Missouri Medal for the War with Germany, the Verdun, the St. Mihiel, uh, I don't feel like I said that right, it's M-I-H-I-E-L, and the Argonne. A-R-G-O-N-N-E. I'm not going to go into detail about his duties during the war. If you're interested in that, that information can be found in biographies about his life, also at the Truman Museum. They have a really good display about his time in the Army. He married Elizabeth, a.k.a. Bess, Virginia Wallace, born in Independence, Missouri, February 15, 1885, to David Willock Wallace, 1860-1903, and Margaret Elizabeth, a.k.a. Madge Gates Wallace, 1862 to 1952, on June 28, 1919. So basically, a war. Uh, sorry, a month after he returned from war, he got married. They were 34 and 35, respectively. As I mentioned in my minisode on the Truman Library Museum, he first proposed via his letter while he was in the army during World War One, and she turned him down. Their only child, Mary Margaret a.k.a. Marge or Margie Truman, uh, no doubt named after several of her grandmothers and great-grandmothers, was born on February 17, 1924 in Independence, Missouri. So Bess would have been 39 at the Wow. Um, I'm sure that that was not an easy pregnancy. And Harry would have been 38. She and her mom, um, that's Bess and Margie, were also birthday buddies. That's always really sweet. They're just born a couple of days apart. Margie married Elbert Clifton Daniel Jr., 1912 to 2000, from Zebulon, North Carolina, on April 21st, 1956, in Independence, Missouri, and they had one son, William Wallace Daniel, 1959 to 2000. Margie died in Chicago on January 28th, 2008. That is actually all I have for the topic today. I imagined this originally as a two-parter, with part one being birth to presidency and then part two being post-presidency. However, it looks like this is going to be a three-parter, with part two covering marriage to presidency and then part three, post-presidency. 
Yes, I spent about half of this episode talking about things unrelated to the podcast, but c'est la vie. Also, I do think that this next segment, his time uh, as a grown man after the war, before he became president, is going to be quite extensive on its own. So thank you for joining me as we uh, explore this piece of Kansas City. I hope that you will join me for part two of this topic next month. I have several sources. I actually got like eight books from the bank, uh, not bank, <laughs> from the library. Um, for this particular episode, I drew most heavily from Harry S. Truman, His Life and Times by Brian Burns. And also, of course, findagrave.com is where I got a lot of the information about his parents and grandparents. I hope you will consider becoming a financial supporter of the show. There are several ways you can do so. You can subscribe to patreon.com slash homegrownkc or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. You can also give a one-time donation at redcircle.com slash homegrownkc or coffee.com slash homegrownkc. That's ko-fi.com. You can give as little or as much as you want, even as little as $1 a month. Once you sign up, create an account, subscribe to the show, you'll be charged on that day and not then on the first. Become a patron supporter, you get three things. One, an item from the merchandise store valued at $5 or less. A shout out on every episode and social media posts. So thank you for continuing to support me, Joan and Bjorn. You also get access to exclusive bonus content featuring other local historians, archivists, and museum curators. Everyone who simply donates will receive a shout-out on the next available episode, but you do not get access to bonus content or anything from the merchandise store. So I reached out to my contact at the Truman Library Museum. They are interested in doing an episode with me, although we do not have a date set. I also reached out to the Grandview Farm, run by State Parks, remember? And they are also interested in doing an episode with me. I do have a date set for that. So that will be April, and I'm also going to do a mini-sode about the farm, so keep an eye out for that one. Additionally, if you donate on coffee, that remember that's ko-fi.com, 1% automatically goes to help fight climate change, which is something that I'm passionate about. Finally, you can send me stars on Facebook, which somehow through the magic of Facebook equals like a dollar. If you cannot support me monetarily, you can still support me by liking, following, subscribing to my social media pages. That's Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, Tumblr. Also my YouTube channel. I'm Homegrown KC on all of those. And rate and review me wherever you listen, but especially Apple Podcasts. You can visit my website for additional information on each topic. That's homegrownkc.wordpress.com. You can also sign up for my newsletter on my website. Once a month, you'll get an email that says, here's what's new, here's what's coming up. It's a great way to stay up to date with the podcast. And to the 20-something people who have currently subscribed, thank you. I appreciate y'all. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or episode suggestions, you can email me at homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can DM me on any of my social media networks. To see what merchandise is available, go to www.zazzle, that's Z-A-Z-Z-L-E dot com slash store slash homegrown underscore KC underscore store. 
Finally, thanks goes out to my talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, for the creation of my logo. To the Dear Misses for the use of their song Kansas City as the intro and outro music of every episode. And to local libraries, which enable me to gather on my research. Thank you for listening. Cheers. seem to shake this feeling and I can seem to get you off my mind